1: all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Spring of Life. Giving my best each day is a demanding task that requires good health. And I try to stay on top of it as much as possible, but some days I could just use something extra. And so I've been taking daily energy from Spring of Life. Daily Energy is one of the most complete nutritional supplements I've seen. It has over 70 natural ingredients that target 11 key areas of health, and it's much more than just a greens product or a health drink. We've worked out a deal with Daily Energy so that listeners like yourself can get 30% off right now. Go to dailyenergy.com smart for this special offer. Again, that's dailyenergy.com smart and save 30% on Daily Energy. It's the simplest life hack you can do for your health this year. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That
0: is an awesome question.
1: This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I
0: like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish
1: I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. <laughs> As a man, I just, I don't get it.
0: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Thanks so much for joining us on this new episode. I got to tell you, this is one for the books. Our guest this week, I actually reached out to him, I'd say over a year or two ago, and he was too busy, I completely understand, because his book at that time was a mega bestseller, New York Times bestseller, it was actually listed on President Barack Obama and Mark Zuckerberg's top books to read. And so he was a little busy kind of with that book. But needless to say, he has a new one that is just now coming out. And we were lucky enough to get the interview this time. And of course, we talk about both books. Who is this man? We are talking to Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. And Dr. Harari is an Israeli historian, a tenured professor at the Department of History of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and a best-selling author. The books that we are talking with him about are, as I mentioned, his previous mega-bestseller called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and his newest book is really an extension of that, and it's called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. So let's set the stage for both of these books. First, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, is just that. However, it's so much more when you dig in. Think about this. A hundred thousand years ago, at least six different species of humans inhabited the earth. But today there's only one, and that's us, Homo sapiens. What happened to the rest? Imagine if there was only one species of bird or one species of fish that's where it starts. So we talk about that in this episode. Where did we come from? How did we evolve? What has it looked like? And much more. As I mentioned, this book was a summer reading pick for President Barack Obama, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg. But then we spend a lot of the time on his newest book, Homo Deus, which really means in Latin, man-god. And the subtitle there is A Brief History of Tomorrow. But in similar fashion, Dr. Harari takes it to a whole new level. Think about this. Over the past century, humankind has been able to transform things such as famine, plague, and war from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. For the first time ever, more people die from eating too much than from eating too little. More people die from old age than infectious disease. And also, more people commit suicide than are killed by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. As Dr. Harari lays out, we have now become self-made gods of planet Earth, and what lies before us is both terrifying and incredible. This content will just make you think and contemplate who we are and what our role is on planet Earth and beyond. So I'm so excited to bring you really this episode that defines smart people podcast as we talk to Dr. Yuval Harari. If you enjoy the show, please head on over to iTunes. Leave us a quick review and a comment. We would greatly appreciate it as it helps others find the show. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter at smartpeoplepodcast.com where you get all the inside track and some new things soon to come. So sit back, tune in. And learn a little something about where we've come from and where we're going. Enjoy. Well, Professor Harari, I have to say I've, I've been hoping to get you on the show for a long time. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on.
2: Yeah, it's it's my pleasure too to be here.
1: I want to give our listeners a little bit of background on what you're doing, and then focus the rest on you know your two books that you've written, which have really changed the conversation a lot on on what it means to be human, and then the newest book, where we're going. Uh, but first, could you kind of give us all a little background on who you are, and really what got you interested in studying exactly that? You know, what humanity is.
2: Well, in my background, it sounds a bit silly, but in my background, I'm a specialist in medieval military history. Uh, I wrote, and in my PhD, in my first articles and books were about things like the Crusades and the Hundred Years' War and knights and castles and things like that. Um, But after I got my uh, permanent position at the university, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, I really turned to questions that bothered me since childhood, maybe since I was a teenager, uh, which are really the the biggest questions of all. Um, What makes humans special? Uh, What are the keys to happiness? Are people today happier than people in in, in past ages? I mean, obviously, we're much more powerful than our ancestors. But are are we also happier uh, than our ancestors? And also questions about the human future where do we go from here? Uh, What is the likely future of Homo sapiens and of life as a whole in a century or two centuries?
1: You know what I love about that and, and what is really apparent in your writing is you seem to have let your curiosity guide your future, guide your, you know, your life. I think a lot of people know what interests them, but fear going towards that because there isn't a proven path. It's easier to just get the desk job or whatever it might be. So did you just allow yourself to go where your curiosity took you, or was there a more defined path?
2: Um, For many years, I lived in in kind of two tracks, two parallel tracks with relatively little interaction. I had my academic career which, as I said, uh, focused on medieval military history. And then in my spare time, I would read philosophy, and I meditate a lot, and I think about these big questions of life. And for many years, I was convinced that the two paths will never, uh, will never combine. And, but after I got my tenure at, at university, and I got encouragement also from, from the university and from my students, I dared to try and combine uh, the two parallel tracks. And the result uh, was these two books, uh, Sapiens, which talks about the human past, and Homo Deus, which talks about the human future. And I don't know, probably luck also has got something to do with it. But it was so successful that now there is no way I'm going back to writing articles about (laughs) the person.
1: (laughs) Yes. And let me say, for those that don't know, you being successful is an understatement. I mean, your book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, was a, a mega success. It was recommended a top read by, you know, the president, by Zuckerberg. Why was there such a need and a want to, to read that and to soak that up? You know, What would you attribute to the success of that book?
2: I think basically we now live in a global world. All the major problems that we are facing are global in nature, whether it's global warming, whether it's disruptive new technologies like artificial intelligence, uh, whether it's the global financial crisis, no nation by itself can solve these problems. We need a kind of new global identity if humankind is to survive and flourish in the 21st century. Uh, So people need to understand the history of our species, not from a narrow perspective of one nation or one religion or one culture, but really from a universal perspective. And most, I'm not sure about the U.S., but certainly where I live in Israel, um, in school, what they teach children is mainly Jewish history and Israeli history, and uh, it's very uh, focused on just, you know, one nation, one culture. And I, from traveling around the world, I got the impression that this is true of many other countries as well. And it's simply inadequate to the needs of the 21st century. There are no longer independent countries in the world. There are still close to 200 countries, but none of them is really independent. Mm. They are all dependent on one another. And uh, the really big challenges, no country can solve them by itself. So uh, this is the side of the demand. There is a real demand. People want to get a global perspective on history. And then on the side of supply, I think what made uh, this book uh, very successful is that it's written for the general public, not for professors at the university. My ideal reader was a kind of 16-year-old intelligent uh, teenager at high school. Um, and I wrote it in such a way that it will be accessible, but at the same time, uh, will tackle the um, really profound questions. I'm not sure about the answers, but right. certainly the questions. I d- I didn't I didn't do any discounts when it came to raising the the questions.
1: Let's start on your book *Sapiens* real quick, and and talk about. Explain the basis for this, which I think is such a a shift in mindset that really uh, we aren't that special. I mean, you talk about 70,000 years ago, we really were as significant as any other living creature. And over the remaining, you know, over those years, we have now taken on the role of almost gods. How did you come to that realization? And how do you best convince people that we're not that special?
2: Humans existed on earth for about two, two and a half million years. And for almost the the whole of this period, they were insignificant animals. They were just apes living at first in Eastern Africa and then spreading to other parts of the world. But their impact on the ecological system was not greater than that of chimpanzees, or elephants, or dolphins, or uh, fireflies. Are they just another animal? And when you look 70,000 years ago, what is also important to realize is that you have many different species of humans. We are used today to being the only human species around, and it sounds strange uh, that there could be humans that are from a different species, not Homo sapiens. Uh, but 70,000 years ago, Earth was populated by at least six different human species. You had Homo sapiens in East Africa, but you had the Neanderthals in Europe and the Middle East. You had other species of humans in Eastern Asia. And this is really shouldn't surprise us because this is a situation with most other, other animals. If you think about bears. So you have, you know, grizzly bears and polar bears and brown bears and black bears. So why shouldn't there be just one species of humans? And the answer, of course, is that uh, once something dramatic happened to the brain and mind of Homo sapiens and transformed it from just another animal into the most sophisticated and, and dangerous animal around, One of the first things Homo sapiens did was to exterminate, uh, drive to extinction all the other human species. And this is why today we are the only human uh, uh, species, but still, um, uh, in our essence, we are still apes. We are still animals.
1: Do we have any understanding of why or how the Homo sapien evolved in that way faster, better? than the other species of human at that time. I mean, what what was the stroke of luck that if we're the same species made us the right one or the one that was going to outlast the others?
2: What makes Homo sapiens superior to all other human species, to all other apes, to all other animals is our unique ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. We are the only animal, as far as we know, that can cooperate flexibly in large numbers. You have other animals, especially the social insects, that can cooperate in large numbers, but they do so in a very rigid way. They can't change the social or political system overnight. Uh, They are much less less flexible than us in the way that they cooperate. Then you have the social mammals like chimpanzees, like dolphins, like the other humans, like the Neanderthals, who could cooperate uh, very flexibly, but they could do so only in very small numbers. Maybe a hundred Neanderthals or a hundred chimpanzees can cooperate, not more than that. And this is because among chimpanzees and Neanderthals, cooperation is based on intimate knowledge. If I want to cooperate with you, I must know you personally. And I just can't know personally more than a hundred other chimpanzees. So I can't cooperate with millions of strangers. Now, Homo sapiens has this remarkable ability to cooperate very flexibly with millions and millions of complete strangers who you, ne- you never meet in your life, but you, you still cooperate with them. And of course, 70,000 years ago, or 20,000 years ago, cooperation was not in the, in the millions, it was only in the thousands, but it was still enough to give Homo sapiens an edge over the Neanderthals and over the chimpanzees and over all the other animals. Now, the next question that people, of course, ask is what makes it possible for Homo sapiens to cooperate in their thousands and millions, uh, whereas no other animal, no, no chimpanzee or elephant can do that? And the answer, very surprisingly, uh, the answer is our imagination and in particular, our ability to create and spread fiction. A fiction is the basis for all large-scale human cooperation. If you examine any human network, whether it's a church, whether it's a state, whether it's an army, whether it's a corporation, at the basis, you will always find fictional stories about things that exist only in our imagination, things like gods and nations and uh, uh, money and human rights, they don't exist in the physical world or in the biological world. They just exist in the stories that we tell one another. And as long as everybody believes the same myth, the same fictional story, everybody obeys and follows the same norms and values and rules, and therefore they can cooperate. Now, this is very unique. Only we can do it. Uh, You can never convince a chimpanzee to give you a banana by promising him that after you die, you'll go to chimpanzee heaven. And there you receive lots and lots of bananas for your good deeds. No chimpanzee will ever believe that. Only humans can believe such stories, which is why only humans uh, can build churches and mosques and synagogues and fight crusades and and build hospitals and and, and whatever. Um, And... It is true not only of religions, it's also true of all other networks of human cooperation, Uh, even human rights, which serve as the legal and political basis for many societies today. They are a fiction, just like God and heaven. They are not a biological reality. It's not a biological fact that humans have rights. Uh, If you take a human and cut him open and look inside, you find the heart and the kidneys and the DNA but you don't find any rights. The idea that all humans have rights and the same rights and so forth, it's just a story that humans invented over the last few centuries and spread around. And because everybody believes, almost everybody believes this story, they can cooperate.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Oh, I love me some Blue Apron. Not only do I love their food, but they're having a huge impact on the community. Their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Their beef is raised humanely, chickens are free range, and the pork is raised naturally. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they are reducing food waste. In addition to an impact on the community, they're having a huge impact on households, especially mine. Cooking together builds strong family bonds, and research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. So what does Blue Apron have to offer? Here are just some of the meals available in January. Spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and fur cake, pork chops and garlic piccata with scallion rice and spinach, and mushroom and chipotle pepper enchiladas with lime sour cream. Those sound amazing, so here's what you have to do check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash smart people. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash smart people. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And now back to the episode.
1: And when I first heard that that part of Humanity that you just summed up, I really thought about the idea of human rights because I think deep down inside, well, that just makes logical sense, right? We we are all the same, therefore we should be treated the same and everything. But it is just a story, and it's a fairly recent one. And and there's even many places today and many people today that don't have the same story. And it made me think: Is there something? that can be exploited about the willingness of humans to follow stories?
2: Definitely. I mean, all all good advertisers, all good politicians, all good religious uh, leaders, they instinctively know this. And, you know, I I followed, for example, the election campaign in the US. And I, I, I was amazed that so many intelligent people think that uh, uh, if somebody says something and I can uh, I, I, then I should check I should check the factual accuracy of what he or she says, as if people are convinced by facts. People are not convinced by facts. People are convinced by stories. If you have a good story, the facts, nobody will let the facts get in the way of a good story. And uh, in science, facts are extremely important, of course. But in most human endeavors, and even sometimes in science, a good story is far more important than getting your facts correct.
1: Wow. That is almost disheartening. But but you're saying that that is actually what makes us the, you know, uh, that's essentially what puts us at the top of the food chain. And so it is genetically and evolutionarily part of our success and therefore you can look at it as a positive because although i we like to think we're logical creatures we're not and that is actually a benefit and not a flaw
2: yeah i mean if we're if we're really consistently logical you could not construct any human society All human societies are based on fictions, are based on cognitive dissonance, on the ability to believe contradictory things. Uh, Even again, we we take an example from from modern Western society. Our, Our legal system is based on the idea of free will, that people have free will, therefore they are responsible for their actions and so forth. This is what you hear if you go to a courtroom. Then you go to a hospital, And our uh, medical establishment and our biological sciences, they say they have a completely different story about humans. Humans don't have free will. Humans are really uh, biological machines. And again, we, we understand better and better how the machinery inside human beings functions and how the machinery of the brain functions, but there is no free will anywhere inside the human being. It's just a myth. Now, you know, and then and, and we have these two, two conflicting views of humanity, one in the hospital and the other in the courtroom. And if we were completely rational, we couldn't live with it. We would have to at least um, abolish or uh, change one of these two systems. But we don't. We just have this mental com- compartmentalization comport- comport- that we think differently when we are in a courtroom and when we are in a hospital. If we were completely consistent and logical, then I don't think we could have constructed any durable society. Uh, To take another example, I mean, you have so many religious people who believe in a single omnipotent God, but at the same time, they also believe uh, in Satan, in the devil, that the devil uh, acts in the world and causes trouble and so forth, and it's inconsistent. If you really believe in an omnipotent God, there is no place for a devil. But so many Jews and Christians and Muslims, they somehow manage both to believe in an omnipotent God and in the devil. How do they do it? It's because Homo sapiens had this unique ability of cognitive dissonance,
1: to believe two contradictory things at the same time. With this knowledge, you having this knowledge, does it ever take away from the passion of life, the ideas, the emotion, because you understand what makes us us is so much colder almost than what we tell ourselves?
2: Um I don't think so. I mean, I I kind of liberate myself from many of the stories in which people around me believe. And I, I live in Israel in the Middle East, so people around me believe really crazy things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the ability to stop being enslaved by all these mythologies and all these fictional stories gives me the ability to see reality more 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 cle- more clearly. A reality is still there. Not everything is a fiction. There is a real world, and maybe the real the the, the Realest thing in the world is suffering. Um, If you if you want a quick and easy test to know whether an entity is real or fictional, just ask yourself whether it can suffer. Uh, A nation is a fictional entity invented by humans uh, because a nation cannot suffer. Uh, We say, for example, that I don't know. Germany suffered the defeat in the Second World War. But Germany cannot suffer. It's just a fictional story. Humans can suffer. Animals can suffer, not a nation. Similarly, corporations or banks, they are a fictional entity. A legal fiction, as lawyers would say. Uh, when a bank goes bankrupt uh, or a corporation goes bankrupt, the corporation doesn't suffer. It cannot suffer because it's just a story that we've invented. But humans and other animals, they are real. Um, and I think that even when we come to to judge stories, i 'm not against fictional stories i don 't think you, you can have a viable society without fictional stories, but there are some stories are better than others, mm. and I think that the way to evaluate stories is to ask which stories cause more suffering and which stories help us to uh, to alleviate suffering. I think the story of human rights, for example. Uh, was quite a good story. It helped uh, in 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 alleviating uh, human suffering. On the other hand, it had its downside, which is that it caused a lot of suffering to other animals, um, because people disregarded them. Uh, with all the talk of human rights, people said, "Oh well, human rights. Only humans have human rights. Hmm. So we can do whatever we we want to the pigs and the cows and the chickens and." the chimpanzees and whatever, because they don't have human rights. Uh, so this is the down, one of the downsides uh, of this particular story. Um, so for me, the really big, the really crucial questions when I look around at the world, if you can go beyond the stories, it's the question of suffering and happiness.
1: If we create these stories and it's a lot of our advantage and it is something unique that our brain can do. And it's really ingrained in who we are. Would you recommend then determining what story we want about ourselves, determining the best story for our lives, and then owning that? Is that, is that a path that you see to happiness to create the story you want in your mind?
2: No, we we don't have this kind of control. Um, To really believe a story, we need to think it's the truth. Yes. You realize that it's just a construct. You won't have the kind of conviction that is really essential uh, to to believe the story and to hold on to it. Um, I would say that, that a better course is to try to go beyond all these stories and to try to see reality as it is, starting with the simplest things of what do I actually see? What do I actually feel? What do I actually touch and smell right now? Uh, We usually, even when we see things, even when we smell things or, or feel things, we immediately impose on them some preconceived narrative, some preconceived mythology. And it takes a lot of effort to resist it and to just say, no, I will just Pay attention to what is really happening right now. Um, I personally practice uh, meditation, Vipassana meditation, for two hours every day. Wow. And the, and, and the focus of this meditation is to do exactly that. You just, you take this, this the simplest experience, like breath coming in and out of your nostrils, and you just, okay, I'll just observe my breath coming in and out of the nostrils. Just see this phenomena and it's extremely difficult. I mean, most people, they try to do it, even when I began it was the same, like for 10 seconds I can observe this simple experience and immediately the mind starts running away to some fantasy, to some dream, to some story that it tells itself. It's extremely difficult to just stay with reality as it is. So I I say to myself that at least for two hours every day, I'm in touch with reality as it, as it is. And then for the other 22 hours, I just get engulfed <laughs> by all the emails and funny cat videos and then Facebook accounts and whatever.
1: Let's move on to the new book, Homo Deus, D-E-U-S, A Brief History of Tomorrow. So when Sapiens explains the past and who we are, how we got here, this is the attempt of explaining what tomorrow might look like. What was the impetus for now writing this?
2: Firstly, I was asked a lot of questions. I mean, after after I I published Sapiens, so most people are far more interested in the future than in the past. So even though Sapiens is about the human past, I think at least 50% of the questions they got were about the future. So I found myself thinking and talking and writing more and more about the future. And secondly, uh, humankind in the next few decades will probably have to make the most important decisions um, in the history, in the entire history of the species. And it's the responsibility of historians and philosophers and thinkers to help us make the right decisions because we'll probably have just one shot. If If we misuse the new technologies of the 21st century, uh, biotechnology and artificial intelligence and so forth, we won't get a second chance. So we had better think very, very carefully what we want to do with these godlike powers. I, I named, I-, I titled the book Homo Deus, which, is, which means God man, that Deus is, is God in Latin. Because what's happening now is that if 70,000 years ago humans were just animals, Now, humans are becoming gods, and I don't mean it as a metaphor, I mean it literally. We are acquiring the kind of abilities that in traditional mythology were ascribed to the gods. For instance, in the Bible, uh, the first thing God does is to create animals and plants and humans according to his wishes, and now we, with biotechnology and artificial intelligence, We are learning how to create and engineer and manufacture animals and plants and humans. And I think the main products of the 21st century economy will be not vehicles and weapons. They will be bodies and brains and minds. We are learning how to engineer them. And in a way, we go even beyond the old gods. Because the old gods, let's like the God of the, of, the, of the Bible, at least according to the Bible, the only things, the only animals that God was able to create are, were organic animals, all these elephants and crocodiles and humans. And now we are in the business of doing something even better than God. We are in the business of creating non-organic life. And if you take an evolutionary perspective, you can say that after four billion years, in which the whole of life was confined to the organic realm, all life, whether you're an amoeba or dinosaur, you're made of organic stuff. Now, after four billion years, we are about to create the
1: first inorganic life forms. So, this is really heavy responsibility. Do you think that? Homo sapiens, as they've existed for the past 70,000 years, will exist in its current form in 200 years?
2: I think it's very unlikely. Uh, Given the kind of powers that we now acquire, within the next 200 years, either we will destroy ourselves or we will upgrade ourselves into something completely different. Uh, But I don't see think that we can just stay as we are. Once you have the technology to engineer bodies and brains and minds we are obviously going to use it on ourselves and not just on on, on laboratory rats and and, and pigs and so forth Uh, so I think that in 200 years Earth will be populated by entities that are more different from us then we are different from neanderthals or from chimpanzees
1: what are you most excited about assuming all of this goes right i'll say right whatever that means what are you most excited about over the next hundred years and what this evolutionary process could become or bring
2: oh what i'm excited about um Actually, I'm not so excited. I think that <laughs> that's they, why I was they,
1: looking for the positive because next I want to know the negative.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, th- there are so many dangers inherent in in such a in such an attempt that I'm more anxious, I think, than, than excited. Um, and, and I think we should be, because you know when people are are excited, they tend to make all these stupid mistakes mm. because they don't pay attention to to what they are doing. We, we should as a, as, a, as a collective I think humankind should be more anxious uh, than excited uh, certainly as, as a historian as an observer of, of human history and of the human species it's very exciting just to see what is happening and where is it taking us and also as a, as a, as a student of of the of life of the evolution of life it's really maybe the most most uh, exciting time since the very beginning of life. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, for, for the last 4 billion years, nothing really happened. I mean, you had life beginning 4 billion years ago, and then you had just variations on the same theme of organic compounds. And now suddenly something completely different is starting.
1: When you say you're anxious about the future, is it because we might create something that essentially destroys... Homo sapiens, therefore rendering us as we know it extinct, and then that thing being a, uh, you know, the next evolution, which would be a robot.
2: There are many uh, possibilities. Um, In the nearer future, one of the biggest dangers is that we will create, we are in the process of creating um, artificial intelligence that outperforms humans in more and more tasks and may push hundreds of millions of people out of the job market. Mm -hmm. So just as in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution created the urban working class, in the 21st century, we may see, we may witness the creation of the useless class. Hundreds of millions of people who are militarily and economically useless and are therefore also politically powerless. And this already began to happen, and if you look at the the military, which is usually a few years ahead of the civilian economy, in the military it already happened. Whereas in the 20th century, the best armies in the world relied on the recruitment of millions and millions of of humans to serve as soldiers, now the best armies, they, they need just small numbers of humans, and they increasingly rely on more and more sophisticated technology. And if the same thing happens in the civilian economy, then we will have this massive useless class and nobody really knows what to do about it. Um, another danger, which is already, we can see it around us, is authority shifting away from humans to algorithms. Not because of some you know, dictatorial government, but simply because it would make sense to give algorithms and to give big data uh, systems more and more authority to make decisions for us because they will know us much better than we know ourselves. Um, It starts with simple things like choosing which book to read. I mean, previously we relied on our own intuition, and maybe on the recommendation of a few friends or whatever, but now we increasingly rely on the recommendations of algorithms. Uh, today it's still very primitive, like you go on Amazon Virtual Bookshop and the algorithm says, oh, I know which books you like in the past, so I recommend to you books that uh, people who like the same books that you liked in the past, they also like these new books, so read them. But this is very primitive. I mean, the next state, which is just around the corner, is um, if you read a book on on a platform like Kindle. So as you read the book, the book is reading you. Uh, Kindle knows which pages you read slow, which pages you read fast, and on which page you stop reading the book and never came back to it. Based on that, Kindle can make, which means Amazon can make, some pretty good guesses about what you like and what you don't like. Now, if you connect Kindle to face recognition software, which is already in existence, Kindle will be able to know when you laugh, when you cry, when you're angry. And the final step is to connect Kindle to biometric sensors on or inside your body. So then Kindle will know what was the impact of every sentence you read in the book, what was the impact on your heartbeat, on your blood pressure, on your brain activity. And based on that, Kindle will, not, will, will know exactly what kind of personality you have, uh, how to press your emotional buttons. Most of what you read in a book, you forget quite quickly. I mean, if you read War and Peace by Tolstoy, you forget most of it very quickly. But Amazon will never forget anything. By the time you finish reading War and Peace, it knows exactly who you are and how to press your emotional buttons. And with that kind of knowledge, it can make decisions for you, not just on on, on what book to buy, but on far more important things like uh, what to study, whom to marry, and who to vote for on, on the election day.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by Encapsula. Every day, websites of all sizes are attacked. Criminals use giant botnets to scrape website content, break into databases, and bring sites down. This can obviously be devastating for websites whose consumers are deterred by long load times and potential security threats. So make your website faster and safer with Encapsula. Encapsula is a cloud service that works to block attacks against your site while delivering your content to your customers faster. This is done by routing and filtering traffic between your servers and your customers using a global network of 30 data centers and 3 terabits of bandwidth. Meanwhile, Encapsula also caches content and optimizes connections using their CDN so your users get your content lightning fast. Encapsula is great it protects and accelerates over 4 million websites every day from individual bloggers all the way up to fortune 500 companies so it's suitable for every kind of site and you can rest easy knowing that encapsula's custom software and 24/7 operations team are ensuring that everything is running smoothly here's what you have to do our listeners can try encapsula one month free and simply by visiting Encapsula.com slash smart. That's Encapsula.com slash smart. And now back to the episode.
1: I think technology, which has been created and, you know, uh, continues to be created by humans much for the purpose of making our lives better. Do you think it ever, instead of going to the point where our own technology rules us, Could it get to the point where humans just get to sit back and do whatever their heart desires while technology does all of the heavy lifting for them? So maybe it's kind of like the Matrix or, you know, where we get to live in our own virtual reality, whatever we want it to be, where there is no suffering. Is that a possibility? It's possible
2: that it will be easy to sustain human life and to provide people with, with food and shelter and medicines and all that without any efforts on their part, and then they will be able to just spend their lives in virtual realities. Whether they'll be happy and whether it will abolish all suffering, it's a completely different question. Because what we have seen throughout history, that humans are very, very good in acquiring more power, and they are not good at all in translating power into happiness. Uh, We are now, you know, thousands of times more powerful than in the Stone Age. But it doesn't seem that the average American is thousands of times more happy than the average hunter-gatherer 20,000 years ago. And this is because our happiness doesn't really depend on our external conditions. It depends on our expectations. And expectations adapt to conditions. So as conditions improve expectations balloon and people can remain as dissatisfied as before or even more even though the conditions the, 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 the basic living conditions are, are much better and we see it all around us in the world. I mean uh, if you told people not 20,000 years ago but people a hundred years ago of the basic living conditions of the average person today in the United States or in Europe, they would think we live in paradise and that we have nothing to complain about. Mm-hmm. But that it's obviously not the case.
1: <laughs> I just, I, you know, I'm looking for the silver lining here.
2: No, I, I can say a few positive things if you want. Sure. Uh, for example, we have been very successful in reducing the amount of violence in the world. Uh, we live in the most peaceful era in human history. Uh, in early agricultural societies, about 15%, 1-5% of all human deaths was caused by human violence. Today, globally, it's about 1%. Uh, Today, more people commit suicide than are killed uh, by terrorists or criminals or soldiers put together. About 700,000 people die every year from human violence compared to about 1 million that die from suicide and 1.3 million that die from car accidents. And 3 million that die from obesity and uh, diabetes and related diseases. So really, um, you know, with all the headlines about terrorism and Al-Qaeda and so forth, the average American is, I think, about a thousand times more likely to die from eating too much at McDonald's than from being blown up by Al-Qaeda, which is very good news. Right. Right. Think that the greatest danger now is eating too much. That would sound to our ancestors like paradise.
1: When you look at our ability to control where the future goes, what do we have to do?
2: I think the most important task is to uh, invest more effort in understanding the human mind. And not just in understanding the human body and the human brain and computers and, and, and so forth. Because the really, the key problems are in our mind, in the way that our own minds uh, function. We have 21st century technology, but we have stone age minds. And they cause all the trouble and all the suffering in the world. And technology by itself is not going to, to solve that or to change that. Uh, Even the ability to start manipulating our own bodies and brains uh, is is very dangerous if we don't understand the mind. Uh, If we look back in history, over thousands of years, humans acquired the ability to manipulate the world outside us, the forests and the rivers and the animals and so forth. But because we didn't really understand how the ecological system functions, What we did with all that power is to completely destabilize the ecological system. So now we are facing an ecological meltdown. And the same thing may happen uh, with the world inside us. We are now learning how to manipulate the world inside us, but we don't really understand how the mind functions. Mm -hmm. We don't really have a good grasp of our internal ecological system. And the danger is that we will, again, misuse all our power and cause our internal mental system to get out of balance uh, with disastrous consequences, both to ourselves as individuals and to the world as a whole. Uh, Because if the world is controlled by a mentally unbalanced species, that's a very dangerous situation.
1: If you could recommend one or two things that have really guided your learning, your growth in the past decade or so, what would they be?
2: Well, if we talk not just about books, but more generally, Mm -hmm. then I would probably say that one of the biggest influences on on me was this practice of meditation, uh, Vipassana meditation, which I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. because it really gave me the, the, the clarity and the focus Uh, When you write about big issues, the the one of the most difficult problems is that you get flooded by so much information and you just don't know what is important, what should I focus on? And uh, meditation really gave me the, the the ability to to focus very sharply on the most important issues. If we if you ask about books in particular, um so two books that made a lot of, 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 uh, of impact on me. One of them uh, is called Chimpanzee Politics by Franz De Waal. It's a classic in, in the field of, uh, of animal cognition and of ethology. It describes the political struggles within a, chim- a, a chimpanzee band uh, that Franz De Waal observed. And it's, it's one of the funniest science books I've ever read. And also one of the most profound science books I've ever read. And it really changed the way that I see not just chimpanzees, but also human beings. Um, Another book which had a tremendous influence on me is is really an an even older classic. It's a science fiction book. I think the best science fiction book ever. uh, And that's Brave New World. Written in the early 1930s. But... um, it still, I think, made a, um, managed to predict the world of the 21st century and the main problems of the 21st century better than almost any other book I've, I've ever encountered.
1: With your clarity, with your knowledge, with your anxieties about the future, what is your daily motivation? What excites you in a world of such clarity in which we've created stories that are fictional why go on almost i'm really curious about your take on that
2: um as i said i mean uh, the stories are not everything reality is still there if you make the effort you can observe reality at least to some extent and suffering is still there so it's still it's it's worthwhile to try and liberate both both yourself and other beings as much as possible uh, from suffering. And, and clarity helps a lot in, in in this endeavor. And for me, this is the uh, I think the main motivation. I don't believe in any overarching story or drama. I mean, some many people they envision the world as some kind of drama and they have a role to play on, on the stage, and, and, and this is what motivates them, I don't think there is any drama or any story. I think the whole, the whole point is uh, to see beyond all these stories and dramas and tragedies that, that humans invent.
1: And if you see beyond it, what's the purpose there? Is it the elimination of suffering?
2: I wouldn't define it, again, in in big terms. Sure. You don't go actively and try to eliminate suffering. I mean, the suffering is inherent in um, our ignorance and in our inability to see reality clearly. The more clearly you see reality, uh, suffering just um, disappears because of that. So you don't need to make an extra effort. Okay, first... I'll see reality clearly and then mm. I'll use it in order to, to, to fight against suffering. No. The more clearly you see reality, the more liberated you are from suffering. So um there is no kind of you know big purpose behind
1: it. Sure. That's beautiful. Well, you've all I, I have to say I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I cannot wait to put it out into the world. Um and so thank you so much. Also, you. You, you know, the, the book Homo Deus. Am I pronouncing that right? Deus? Yes.
2: Homo Deus. It's
1: yeah. A Brief History of Tomorrow and Sapiens as well. We will link to those on Smart People Podcast. We'll put them in the post. Where else do you do you write a lot elsewhere? Are you active on social media or anywhere else where people I know will want to learn more from you? Where can they do that?
2: Uh, I have a website. Okay. It's, it's just ynharari.com. Y-n- H A R A R I.com. Okay. And okay. there are links there to if I write something for, you know, I don't know, the, 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 the Financial Times or the Guardian or whatever. So there is a link there. And there is also a list of events. I'll be in the US in February. So I'll be both in the on the on the East Coast and the West Coast and in some places in between. So there are several uh, events open to the public. So if people want to come, the, the details are there. Um, yeah, I think that that, that's the best way to, to, to find, to find more.
1: Perfect. And again, thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Thank you. It it was a lot of fun for me also. It's
1: It's a good sign
2: when, when you, when an interview is fun.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Yuval Noah Harari. His book, Homo Deus, a Brief History of Tomorrow can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. And if you're picking up his book through Amazon, please make sure you use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. All purchases made through the link come at no extra cost to you. We get a nice little kickback, and it's just an easy way to help out the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to help out the show, please head over to iTunes, leave a rating, review, and comment over there, and subscribe if you haven't already. I mention this every show, but it is really easy to get in contact with Chris and I. You can reach us via email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. As always, make sure you stay tuned to All Things Smart People Podcast by heading over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and signing up for the newsletter over there. All right, we've got a lot of great episodes coming up. Thank you again for listening and downloading the show, and we will see you all next episode.